Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me now to the Gospel of Luke and to the 15th chapter. We're stepping out of our series in Matthew's Gospel and opening instead to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, which we'll read in just a moment in its entirety. Luke chapter 15. In this chapter, we find three parables, three stories about the kinds of things that might happen in everyday life, but that are meant to teach us about spiritual realities. So keep that in mind as we read Luke 15. These three stories told by Jesus about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son, these three stories drawn from the human experience are meant to teach us about spiritual realities. They are meant to teach us spiritual truth. So then, Luke chapter 15, which we'll read in full. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, that is to Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these 
things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This 15th chapter of Luke is one of the most memorable one of the most marvelous, one of the most moving passages in all of the Bible and really in all of literature. Many as a person, for instance, who having become familiar with Jesus' beautiful tale in verses 11 and following, many as a person who can fairly quickly have its bold scenes, both its darker hues and its brighter shades, painted all over again on the canvas of his imagination by simply hearing the words, a man had two sons. Jesus is a master storyteller, and I think that many would agree that this story, in verses 11 through 32, is perhaps the greatest of them all. And the two more concise stories that precede it here in Luke 15, well, they're not too shabby either, are they? They are master works as well. With what expertise Jesus has woven together these parables, these three stories about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son, each of which teaches us about God and about his gospel. And of course, what makes these stories so memorable and so moving and so valuable is not only the expertly selected words and colors with which Jesus tells and paints these stories, but the content of the stories themselves, and also the powerful and infallible source from which these stories come. What makes these stories so memorable and so moving and so valuable, in other words, is not only Jesus' storytelling prowess, but also the truth about his Father and about the Father's mercy towards sinners that these stories communicate and the fact that these stories are, in fact, the very words of God. So that, while I highly enjoy, for instance, the phenomenal literary ability that is on display in Melville's Moby Dick, yet the words, call me Ishmael, do not hold a candle to a man had two sons. Because here are not only beautiful words, but here are the very words of God which are inherently powerful and which are absolutely true. And because what is communicated here in Luke 15 is not only beautiful, but is marvelous truth about the love and mercy of that God and truth about ourselves too, if we are in Christ. And so if you're not yet familiar with these stories, I'd urge you to become so. I'd urge you to read them over again this afternoon, perhaps, slowly, 
thoughtfully, calling up each of the colorful scenes in your mind's eye and remembering that these scenes and these words are the very words of God and considering what Jesus is saying here about God and about sinners and about you if you have turned to Christ in repentance and faith or if you will. And then perhaps do it again each Lord's Day, maybe throughout the month of October, so that you are familiar with these amazing, powerful, moving tales. Tales from events that could happen in everyday life, but that teach us about the gospel and about God himself. This is a very and extremely valuable collection of stories here in Luke 15. And with these stories open on our laps this morning, there are a number of things that could be emphasized, a number of things that would be well worth our attention in Luke chapter 15. For instance, the way God searches sinners out, hiking the countryside, as it were, in verse 4, in search of his lost sheep, getting out his flashlight in verse 8, and running his broom through all the nooks and crannies of the house in search of his lost coin. We could also note In the third and most famous of these stories, both the folly of walking out on God in verses 11 through 7 or 12 through 17 and where it leads us, and also a portrait of true repentance in verses 18 through 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And then it would also be worth some time to consider the older brother in verses 25 and following, who is a portrait of the Pharisees who were grumbling up in verse 2 about Jesus' friendliness towards sinners and whose grumbling about Jesus' friendliness towards sinners is what prompted the telling of these stories in the first place. All of these things are here in Luke 15, and they are all important in Luke 15 and worthy of our consideration, and perhaps you will think about them further. But what I want to focus on today is just one theme that recurs in each of these three stories. One theme that can be summed up in those words in verse 6 and which are repeated also in verse 9, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. On this day on which we have witnessed the baptism of five precious souls, today is a day on which our Father is saying to us, rejoice with me, verse 6, for I found my sheep which was lost. Rejoice with me, verse 9, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Let us eat and celebrate, verse 23, for this son of mine, verse 24, and this daughter of mine today as well, was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Now it's important to say that these five sheep this morning, these five coins, these two sons and three daughters were found by God, not today in the baptismal pool, but they were found by God sometime back when God brought each one of them at a point in time to repentance of their sins and to faith in his son. Baptism is not where or how God finds the lost sinner. Baptism does not wash away sins. Baptism does not save. Baptism is not even a part of our salvation from sin. It is merely a symbol, an important symbol, but a symbol nonetheless of the salvation that God has already worked in a person's life. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And so the Father and his angels have been rejoicing for some time since over the salvation of these five souls. For all of them were already trusting Christ when they stepped down into the waters this morning. And yet, though God and his angels have known about and have been rejoicing in the turning to Christ of Julia and Sarah and Julia and Daniel and David, though God and his angels have known about and been celebrating this salvation for some while now, today is the day when through baptism the saving of these five souls becomes public before our eyes. The shepherd found his lost sheep out on the hillside some time back, right? But today is the day, as it were, when he returns to the village and holds up the retrieved sheep before his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. Today is a day for celebration. Today, God's word to us is, Rejoice with me. And I want us to think that out now just under two headings, the first of which is the reason for the rejoicing. The reason for the rejoicing. Why should we rejoice today? What are we rejoicing in? Well, we're rejoicing today for precisely the reason that there's rejoicing here in Luke 15. Over God's rescue of lost sinners. We're rejoicing that God has saved lost sinners. The sheep in verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6, and the coin in verses 8 and 9 represent sinners. We're told in verses 7 and 10. Sinners who have been found. Sinners who have repented. And very clearly that's what the son represents in verses 11 and following. A rebel. But who comes home? A lost sinner who wanders away but is recovered. And so this passage is about the saving of sinners. And rejoicing in the saving of sinners. And that's what we're celebrating today. The saving of of sinners. Please do not leave here today under the impression that you have witnessed some sort of religious coming of age ceremony. No, no. That is emphatically not what you have witnessed today. This is not a day on which we say, and there's never a day on which we say, oh, those nice little church children, they're all growing up and they're being baptized and they desire to join the church like all good children will want to do when they get to a certain age. No. There are no good children and there are no good adults either. We're all broken in our sin and in need of repentance as we read in this passage, verses 7 and 10. We're all lost and in need of being found, of being forgiven, and of being made new. And baptism is a picture of that. It's not just a picture, it's not at all a picture of coming of age, it's a picture of forgiveness, Luke or Acts 2. It's a picture of someone being made new in Christ. The old person being buried and a new person being alive by Jesus' resurrection power, as Charles read in Romans 6. It's a picture of this beautiful union with Christ whereby we come into these blessings. Baptism is a picture of a rescue project. It's a picture of God's rescue project. It's a portrait of God doing what we read about in Luke 15. Retrieving that which was lost, verses 1 through 10. Receiving back those who had gone astray, verses 11 through 24. 
And so the young people who stood before us this morning, the young people over whom we celebrate today, did not step down into those waters and were not immersed into those waters as a symbol of their coming of age. No, they were immersed in that water. They themselves understand that this is so. They were immersed in that water as a picture of God saving, God's rescuing of their souls as a picture that there was an old sinful self that needed to be buried with Christ and that has been risen in Christ, a new person. And as a picture that there was a new life that needed to rise with Jesus and that it has. They realized that they were dead, verse 24, and have come to life again, that they were lost and have been found. And we need to make sure we realize that today as well. Today is a, rejoice, a day to rejoice in God's saving of sinners, in God's retrieving of the lost, in God's welcome of the penitent rebel. And we need to realize this, not so that we can magnify their sin or their neediness as though they were any more sinful or needy than any of us are, but we need to magnify that this is about the saving of sinners so that we magnify the wonder of what has actually taken place. We're not celebrating today basically good kids taking the next logical step in their development. We're celebrating brands plucked from the fire. We're celebrating sinners rescued from eternal judgment, the dead raised to life. Let us eat and celebrate for these sons and daughters of mine were dead and have come to life again. They were lost and have been found. They were sinners, just like I was a sinner and just like you were a sinner, who deserved God's judgment and who needed to be rescued from it and who have been through Christ. And oh, my friends, we need to realize that this is what has happened so that we can truly celebrate as we should. The woman doesn't rejoice in verses 8 and 9 because she opens her purse and finds her coin where she thought it would be all along. The shepherd doesn't rejoice in the first part of the passage because he goes out to the sheep pen and finds all 100 sheep exactly where they're supposed to be. They rejoice because... Something has been lost, and now they've found it. They rejoice because something was missing, something was in peril, and now it has been rescued, now it has been found. To put it in our own day, we might say that we probably, most of us, don't rejoice normally when we hear that a loved one's airplane flight has landed safely at its destination. We might breathe a sigh of relief, Okay, I'm glad they made it, but we probably don't throw a party. However, if you saw on CNN the story of a plane whose engines had failed and which was having to make an emergency landing somewhere out on one of the two-lane highways here in northern Kentucky... And if you then realize that the flight number of that plane scrolling across the bottom of your screen matched the flight number of your spouse or your son or your daughter, then you might have some sort of a party. Then you might have some sort of a celebration when you finally got to see their face again after a safe landing, right? And that's what we're talking about here today. We will rejoice best if we realize the peril from which sinners have been rescued if we realize the peril from which these young people have been rescued let us eat and celebrate for these sons and daughters of mine were dead and have come to life again they were lost and have been found and while i urge you today 
to celebrate this saving work of God in the lives of these five young people. I must also ask you, my friend, if we have ever ever had reason, real reason to rejoice over you in this way. Each one of you, I'm asking you, have you sought and found God's forgiveness in Christ? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Have you ever come back up the road to your Heavenly Father the way this boy does in Luke 15, confessing that you've sinned against Him and making no excuses with your tail between your legs and then arriving at the door and finding Him eminently ready to forgive? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you been made alive in Christ in the way about which Charles read a little while ago in Romans 6? And if you've never come to Christ, why not today? Why not have your sins forgiven? Why not return to the Father like this prodigal son? Why not begin to walk in newness of life today? Why not tuck your tail between your legs today and return to your Father penitently today, seeking His forgiveness in Christ today, right now where you sit? He won't turn you away. The one who comes to me, Jesus says, I will certainly not cast out, and neither will the Father turn you back. Their word to those who knock on the narrow gate seeking salvation, as John Bunyan put it, Marvelously, their word, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, their word to those who knock at the gate seeking salvation, Bunyan says, is this. We make no objections against any, notwithstanding all that they have done before they come hither. Or in the words of Jesus, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Just think of the lengths that God has done to save poor sinners, to bring into being this rescue project over and over again in the lives of one sinner and another sinner and another sinner. Sending His very own Son into the world to take upon Himself our flesh and our nature and to be tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And then to go, this Jesus, this Son of God, to go to that cruel cross and to hang there, and to bleed there, and to suffer there, and to die there on behalf of His people, in their place, bearing the guilt of their sins, and receiving the punishment for their sins in His own body, so that they need not bear that guilt themselves, and so that they need not bear that punishment themselves. Christ, this is the length to which God has gone. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. And he rose again so that we too might walk in newness of life. God has been good to us. God has gone to great lengths to save sinners. Jesus has gone to great lengths to save sinners. Will you not turn to him? Will you not turn to the Father who so lovingly sent him? God, it may be, by this very sermon has come into your life like the shepherd today looking for his lost sheep. Like the woman in Jesus' story, God might be today in these very moments searching you out, coming to look for you and to find you. And I urge you to come out of your hiding, my friend, through repentance of sin and through faith in Christ. And there will be joy in heaven today if you will turn 
to Christ in repentance and in faith. And we will have reason for rejoicing too sometime soon as we have opportunity to bring you into the waters of baptism. So that's the first thing today, the reason for rejoicing. We rejoice today over the success of God's search and rescue mission, over the saving of sinners, over the retrieval of that which was really, truly lost and in peril apart from Christ. And then in the second place, let us consider also the parties to the rejoicing. The reason for the rejoicing and then the parties to the rejoicing. Who is it who is rejoicing? And who is it who should be rejoicing in this passage and thus on this day of baptisms here in our church family? Well, let's notice, first of all, the rejoicing of God. The rejoicing of God himself. Remember that these are parables. These are stories about the kinds of things that might happen in everyday life that are told in order to illustrate spiritual realities. And in these particular stories... The shepherd in verses 4 through 6, and the woman in verses 8 and 9, and the father in verses 11 and following, all picture God himself. The shepherd, the woman, and the father in these stories are all pictured for us in the place of God. They all represent the father. And so, when the shepherd says, rejoice with me, and when the woman says, rejoice with me, And when the Father says, let us eat and celebrate, we are to understand that these are the sorts of things that God says when he finds his lost sheep, when he finds his lost coins, when he finds his lost sons and daughters. And notice that God says, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, which of course means that he himself is rejoicing because you can't rejoice with someone who isn't himself already rejoicing, right? God is rejoicing in this passage. And notice in verse 24 that God says, let us celebrate, plural. Those are the words of the Father representing the Father, and he says, let us celebrate, plural, which means that the Father is in on the celebration too. And so I say to you today on the authority of Luke 15 that God has been rejoicing over these five young souls, over these five found sheep. And surely he is still rejoicing today as we have occasion now to hear him say, rejoice with me. Let us celebrate. Zephaniah wrote about God's rejoicing over his people in the third chapter of his prophecy like this, shout for joy. O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy or with singing in the King James Version. Did you think about that this morning? as these five precious souls made their union with Christ public 
Did it occur to you that God was rejoicing over them? God himself? Maybe even that this is one of those occasions on which he might be singing over his people? I confess that I wouldn't have thought about that were it not that I was preaching this passage. In fact, while I was up there doing what I was doing, I wasn't thinking about that even then. But I'm thinking about it now. And I want you to think about it now. It's true. And I hope that I can store it in my memory bank, and you can too for future occasions, this fact that God himself rejoices when sinners repent. God rejoices when the lost are found. God rejoices when people come to Christ. What a thought. And then notice this as well, that it's not only God who rejoices, but also his friends and neighbors. His friends and neighbors. Listen again to verses 4 through 6. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which was lost." And then read it again in verses 8 and 9. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. And who are these friends and neighbors of God? Well, in verse 10, we are told, of there being joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents, which I take to mean that there's not only joy in their presence, as though someone else were rejoicing in front of the angels, but I take it to mean that joy in the presence of the angels refers to the fact that the angels themselves are rejoicing. And so the friends and neighbors who are to rejoice with God include at least the angels... It's also possible, though we can't be certain, but it's possible that when verse 7 speaks of joy in heaven generally, that could include not only angels, but also the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the believers who have gone on before us, in other words, rejoicing as well when people come to Christ. As I say, we can't be sure of that. The passage doesn't tell us for sure, but it does seem sure that the angels, at least, are rejoicing with the Father, when someone turns to Christ. And that too is a wonderful thought, isn't it? To think this morning that those marvelous hosts that we read about in Scripture, those powerful beings, those flames of fire, as Hebrews calls them, are standing in the magnificent courts of heaven and having a celebration today over Julia and Sarah and Julia and Daniel and David. And over you when you came to Christ, if you have. Perhaps this angelic rejoicing is an indication of their own concern for us, the angels' own concern for us, their own desire for our well-being. But surely it's a reflection of what they know their master values. They rejoice because they know their master values the souls of his people. Their master values the rescue of his lost sheep. Their master values the salvation of his 
elect. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God is rejoicing. The angels are rejoicing. And then note this, last of all, as we think about the parties to the celebration, the parties to the rejoicing. Note, in the latter portion of the chapter, that there is rejoicing not only in heaven among God and his angels, but that there ought to be rejoicing on earth. Verse 32, by the brother of the rescued sinner. We had to celebrate, the father says to the older brother in verse 32, meaning all of us here in this household had to celebrate. And the implication is surely that you, son, should be celebrating with us. You, older brother, should be rejoicing with us. The problem with his elder brother in verses 25 and following, and with the Pharisees in verse 2, whom the older brother represents, the problem with these men was an unwillingness to rejoice over brands plucked from the fire, over sinners coming to repentance, over prodigals coming home and lost sheep being found. And the fact that Jesus corrects them on this front, that he corrects them about their unwillingness to rejoice over found sheep, shows that rejoicing was indeed warranted among them, right? It shows the fact that he corrects them in this story through the words of this father to his pouting son. Jesus shows us in that, that celebration over the prodigal returning, celebration over rescued sinners, should not only be done by the Father, should not only be a heavenly thing, but an earthly thing as well, taken up by other people who see the saving work that God has done. It's not just the angels who should rejoice, and it's not just God who should rejoice, but other people too, and particularly those to whom the returned prodigal ought to be considered their brother or their sister. Particularly those who are called God's people ought to rejoice. It's not just the servants in the house that rejoice. It's not just the Father that rejoices. It's not just, in other words, the angels that rejoice and God who rejoices, but the people of God should rejoice as well. And I point that out today, not primarily out of a concern that there are older brothers, so to speak, in the room today who are unable to celebrate the salvation of these precious souls. Although if that shoe fits, I urge you to consider carefully the final eight verses of this chapter and to repent and to rejoice. But I point, I po- point this out today that a celebration is called for in heaven, and not only in heaven but on earth, that a celebration is called for not only among God and the angels, but also among God's people. I point this out today primarily to reinforce what I believe most of you are already gladly doing, which is rejoicing. You are glad today, right? I believe that most of you, hopefully all of you, are not like the older brother. And so I'm not bringing him up to scold. I'm bringing him up to say what he should have been doing is what you are doing. We're glad today. We're rejoicing today. We'll have refreshments today. We've taken pictures and video today. Some of you have come from out of town today and from other churches here in town in order to be here and to celebrate God's grace in these young lives. And the main reason I wanted to preach this sermon, to preach God's words, rejoice with me, and the main reason I'm pointing out that the brothers should rejoice is to say to you that all of this celebration that you're doing today is warranted. 
and it's right, and it's good. God's word today in the mouth of the shepherd, verse 6, and in the mouth of the woman in verse 9 is rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. We have to celebrate and rejoice, verse 32. For these brothers and sisters of yours were dead and have begun to live and were lost and have been found. You're doing the right thing by being here and rejoicing. What a good and glorious God we have to rejoice in. A God who not only purchased his people's salvation at the precious cost of his son's own blood, a God who not only searches those peoples out, those people out by the ministry of his Holy Spirit in order to bring them home by repentance and faith, a God who not only rejoices over them himself, but a God who invites us to the party who includes us in the celebration, who says to us on occasions such as this one, rejoice with me.